0: Hello and welcome to Musings on History, episode 8.4, Black Reconstruction in America. Welcome back to Musings on History. I'm your host, Dana, and this episode is named for what I consider the magnum opus of Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois' works, the 1935 History of Post-Civil War Reconstruction. Formerly titled Black Reconstruction in America, an essay toward a history of the part which Black folks played in the attempt to reconstruct democracy in America, 1860 to 1880, this book was written by as a counter to the prevailing view of Reconstruction at the time, which was that it was a failure. Dr. Du Bois saw this view as part of a larger effort to diminish and erase the contributions and advancements made by Black Americans post-slavery. While researching and writing this book, Dr. Du Bois also broke some of his long-standing ties to the NAACP Continued to fight for social justice in America and abroad, and developed class consciousness as he acquainted himself with Marxist Leninist ideology. Chapter 1 Socialism and Pragmatism. When Dr. Du Bois became the editor of The Crisis in 1911, he also joined the Socialist Party of America. The Socialist Party of America was a socialist political party that was formed in 1901 in a merger between the Social Democratic Party of America and disaffected elements of the Socialist Labor Party of America. The Socialist Party membership included trade unionists, progressive social reformers, populist farmers, and immigrants from Europe, the Americas, and East Asia. It was less popular amongst Black Americans, many of whom still lived in the Deep South, where espousing socialist politics was more often than not responded to with extreme violence, such as in Elaine, Arkansas, and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The Republican Party, which in the first half of the 20th century appealed to Black voters on the grounds that theirs was the Party of Lincoln, who had freed the slaves and gave them voting rights, was the political party most favored by a majority of Black Americans. The Socialist Party's fatal flaw was that unlike their other third parties in America at the time and other socialist parties around the world, it refused to form legislative coalitions with other parties and did not even allow its members to vote for candidates in other parties. Initially, this rule paid off for the Socialist Party with the trade unionist and political activist Eugene V. Debs, twice winning over 900,000 votes in the 1912 and 1920 presidential elections, and two House representatives, Victor L. Berger of Wisconsin and Meyer London of New York. The Socialist Party also saw dozens of state legislators, more than 100 mayors, and countless lesser officials be elected to office. Most of them immigrants or first-generation Americans, some of them women, and several of them Jewish, which reflected the party's main base. Dr. Du Bois joined the Socialist Party of America because of its staunch opposition to American involvement in World War I, which he admired. Eventually, like I discussed in the last episode, both NAACP co-founder Joel Springarn and other Black American leaders persuaded Dr. Du Bois to abandon his anti-war stance in favor of leveraging Black American support for the war for increased civil rights. But after the cold and oftentimes violent reception that Black veterans received when the war ended, Dr. Du Bois' anti-war sentiments returned with fervor. The party's staunch opposition to American involvement in World War I, although welcomed by many, also led to prominent defections, official repression, and vigilante persecution. There was also internal division over how to respond to the 1917 October Revolution in Russia, where the Bolsheviks eventually took power. The Socialist Party was split over whether to join the Communist International when it was established in 1919, which led to most of the remaining members of the party joining the Communist Party of America instead. All the CPUSA was invited to attend the first Congress of the Comintern, None of the American delegates were given passports to attend the conference in Moscow in March of 1919. Although the rules of the Socialist Party of America explicitly stated that members were not permitted to endorse or vote for non-Socialist Party candidates on any level, Dr. Du Bois was a man who always followed his own conscience, even if that conscience was at times influenced by his friends. He joined the party against the advice of his close personal friends and fellow NAACP members, Mary Ovington, William English Walling, and Charles Edward Russell, who were all white and wealthy. Then, even more confusingly, he decided to publicly endorse the Democrat Woodrow Wilson for president in the 1912 elections, an action that I'm sure he felt deep shame and regret and embarrassment over when Wilson played birth of a nation in the White House three years later. His rationale in 1912, however, was that Wilson's agenda promised to be more beneficial for Black Americans. Dr. Du Bois could not have been more wrong. Scarcely a year later, in 1913, Woodrow Wilson's administration had allowed many federal agencies to adopt whites-only employment practices, and the Army officially excluded Black men from its officer corps. The Immigration Service also prohibited the immigration of persons of African ancestry that year, which was later replaced by an equally as racist quota system that categorically denies visas for people from African countries or who were of African descent. In 1914, Dr. Du Bois wrote an editorial in the crisis, deploring segregation in federal employment and the dismissal of black Americans from federal service And he publicly supported the Boston newspaper editor William Monroe Trotter when Trotter took Wilson to task face to face in a White House visit in 1914. Trotter, who frequently attacked what he saw as the complacency of the black establishment, opposed Booker T. Washington's approach, which made him an instant fave for Dr. Du Bois, and had also supported Woodrow Wilson in 1912. I feel like people frequently misunderstand both Dr. Du Bois and William Monroe Trotter's support for Woodrow Wilson and Democratic candidates in general at this time. Both Trotter and Du Bois felt that the Black vote was being taken for granted by the Republicans and that the general attitude was that the Republicans felt Black voters owed the party their allegiance since it was the GOP who freed the slaves, however reluctantly. With this attitude, the GOP postured itself as the lesser evil and Black voters were made to feel as though they were the only choice since the Democrats, with some exceptions, were committed to preserving white supremacy and all its manifestations. The problem is, so were the Republicans. Although from time to time, when too much fuss was made, such as when Black people started fighting back during the 1919 race riots, the GOP would make conciliatory gestures or promise to protect Black people's civil rights. The other problem is, they would then fail to make good on those promises, and so people like Dr. Du Bois and Mr. Trotter felt that Black people should vote for whomever they felt would earn that vote, not along any party lines. This is also not a faultless policy, as both men would learn with Woodrow Wilson, who in his first meeting with Trotter made promises to further desegregate federal employment and instead barred Black Americans from federal service completely. But personally, I think this is the general fault of representational democracy. It requires citizens to trust that once elected, politicians will keep their promises. But if a politician only made those promises to get elected, and once they do, what incentive do they have to keep those promises after being sworn in? Some would say it's the threat of not being reelected, but many politicians have found clever ways around that too, such as voter suppression and just plain on making up excuses for why they couldn't make good on those promises. Distracting voters with conciliatory measures is another tried and true method of ensuring that one can be reelected without actually having to do what they say they're going to do. Some politicians start wars, others find scapegoats within marginalized communities, and others still wear kente cloth and kneel on marble floors in their suits, while thousands of people are still being poisoned by the municipal water that they pay for. So when you see Black people going against the grain and supporting third-party candidates or modern-day Republicans, it's not just a way to garner attention and notoriety, although it is that too. It's part of a general desire for the Black vote and thus the Black community to have its concerns taken seriously. Me personally, I prefer to be more direct about things. I can either vote for a city councilman, and it's not an either-or thing, but it's an either-or thing for me. I can either vote for a city councilman who promises to hire street sweepers from my neighborhood, or who promises to open up a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter, or I can just go outside and pick up the damn trash myself. And pass out the blankets myself and the soup myself. And like my resume says, I'm a real soft starter. So that's what I've decided to do. But you do you. As we should all know by now, the end of the First World War coincided with the establishment of the United Socialist Soviet Republic or USSR, the world's very first communist state. I have a very in-depth history of the Soviet Union on the podcast already. So please feel free to peruse that at your leisure. In 1926, Dr. Du Bois took his first trip to the Soviet Union, if for no other reason than to find out what the hell they had going on over there. The Russian Civil War had ended a mere three years prior, and Vladimir Lenin had died in 1924, and his successor, Joseph Stalin, was attempting to modernize and rapidly industrialize the Soviet Union for the wars that were eventually to come. Dr. Du Bois was, in his own words, not fully acquainted with the writings of Marx, Engels, and Lenin, which I found odd given that he had started studied in Marx's native Germany, but people are usually least appreciated in their hometown, so maybe that's why. When Dr. Du Bois visited the Soviet Union, he entered a country in disarray. The waning years of the Russian Empire had been marked by a stagnated economy, poor working conditions, military losses, and a general disenchantment with the old ways of doing things. This was followed up by the dismantling of the Russian Empire in favor of a transitional liberal democratic government that withdrew from World War I because they were losing so badly on the Eastern Front and the signing of a humiliating separate peace with the German Empire that saw many historical holdings of the Russian Empire, such as the Baltic States, Finland, and Ukraine, either being consolidated under German control or gaining independence, such as was the case with Finland. Immediately following these national humiliations and military defeats was the Russian Civil War, which was fought between the various socialist and liberal democratic factions within Russia, along with some outside interventionists who either wanted to reinstall the monarchy, preferably a weak one like the last Romanov had been. Sorry, Nicholas, you were just not the man for the job. Uh, That was what the British wanted to do. And then you had some French elements that wanted to support the Kerensky government. And then the Americans were kind of brought into the fray to be messy by the British. They didn't want to install a monarchy. They just kind of wanted to see what they could get out of it. Despite the widespread poverty and political upheaval that he saw in the Soviet Union, oh, they also wanted Russia, whatever government they handpicked for Russia during the Civil War, the other allies wanted the Soviets to get back into the war so that uh, the Germans and Austro-Hungarians and who else, Turks, would have an Eastern Front that they had to fight on as well. In particular, Churchill wanted the German Empire and the Russian Empire to just batter each other to death. And then he and the Brits and the French could just come and like pick over their bones. What a charming man he was. I hope he is rotting in hell. I will see you there, Churchill. I will see you there, bitch. Despite the widespread poverty and political upheaval that he saw in the Soviet Union, Dr. Du Bois was particularly impressed by how much the Soviets under Stalin were committed to unifying workers, regardless of ethnicity or religion. The Russian empire was multi-ethnic, and so was the Soviet Union, and so was the Russian Federation of today. And although Stalin made many, many missteps in regards to the treatments of the various ethnicities in Russia, Dr. Du Bois did note that the USSR... he visited in 1926, was making greater strides in racial unity than his own capitalist United States. And he had to concede that socialism would probably be a better path towards racial unity than capitalism. And the reason why Stalin, he was one of those equal opportunity offenders. He didn't have any particular hatred towards any particular group. Anybody could get it, get down or lay down. I'm a Stalin apologist, so just skip over this if you don't like him or whatever. But what he liked to do was to prevent the formation of ethno states. He didn't want any particular group within the USSR getting too comfortable and thinking, oh, it's a bunch of us that we're all the same, we all worship the same, speak the same language, look the same. This is our land, and only we should live here. That's how ethno states get formed. So if he noticed, for instance, too many Kazakhs are living in this little area, maybe it's historical Kazakhstan, maybe it's part of present-day Kazakhstan, it didn't really matter. If he saw it was one too many of y'all that all looked the same, spoke the same, ate the same, da-da-da-da-da, considered yourselves a distinct ethnic group living in a certain area, he would just pull up, with a train car and say, okay, 30% of y'all are going to move clear to the other side of the country because I don't want anybody getting any ideas that only you should be living in this little area and that you should be autonomous and da da da. Because to be honest, ethnostates are how you get things like pogroms and genocides and civil wars. And one thing about strongmen. They will not have anything that remotely resembles competition. I'm the only one knocking heads around around here is how Stalin thought of things. You will not oppress anybody for their religion. I will oppress all of you for whatever reason I fucking feel like. So he would just pack up about 30% of those Kazakhs living in that area, move them clear across the country, settle them there. Then they would start mixing and mingling and and marrying and going to school and learning the language of whoever else lived there. Relating that to present day events, one of my followers DM me and asked me, what is this orc business? Why are Russians being called orcs? Like I don't get the, the reference here. So. Tolkien, you know I love him, but he yeah, he was German. He was English, but he was German. And he had some interesting opinions about race mixing, right? The orcs in Tolkien's legendarium are corrupted elves. The elves are pure, beautiful, the firstborn, the first maid, but not the first to awaken. Orcs were made by Melkor and Melkor couldn't make anything of his own. He could only corrupt what Eru made. So he stole some elves and Tolkien doesn't really get into detail about how the orcs came to be, but the implication is that there was some mixing of the blood that made them into orcs and that orcs are impure, Strictly off of their blood, which is then highlighted in how if you if if an orc is around, your knife will start shining and glittering because their blood is enough to just set things off, right? And so orcs are impure, and certain demographics that are really big on their racial purity and their Europeanness and their blonde hair and their blue eyes. Look down on Russians because due to Stalin's policies of resettlement, a large majority of Russians in modern day Russia are of mixed ethnicity. They might have a Jewish great-grandma and a Bulgarian Muslim great-grandpa because Stalin one day woke up his great-grandma and said, I'm in need like, 300 of y'all to pack up your belongings, get on this train and move to this other Soviet Republic real quick because it's way too many of y'all living in the same area. And I can't have that. You need you need to be getting to know all your neighbors, have a baby with somebody of a different ethnicity, spread the love around. So a lot of Russians have Mongol ancestry, Tartar ancestry, Persian ancestry. Russia is a very multi-ethnic. There's no one way to look Russian, you know? And so that's where the orc thing comes from. That was a huge detour that had nothing to do with Dr. Du Bois, but or kind of did. But for the person who asked, that's where the whole orc thing comes from, It's a racist dog whistle. And if anybody calls you one, feel free to kick them in the throat. The end. Now, as I stated in one of my episodes on the history of socialism, you can't legislate that everybody will get along. But you absolutely can legislate parity between different groups of people. And that is one arena where socialists have capitalists be as well as education. If the socialists don't do anything else, they will make sure that your ass can read and write and do your arithmetic. In spite of his growing interest in socialism, Dr. Du remained a founding and influential member of the decidedly liberal democratic NAACP. And this affiliation trumped his association with socialists and communists in America, especially where black people were concerned. In 1931, nine Black American boys in Scottsboro, Alabama, were arrested for allegedly raping two white women, which was essentially a death sentence for all of them. They were dubbed the Scottsboro Boys, and Black Americans, who were by then fully aware of how false rape accusations by a white woman usually ended in the Deep South and really anywhere, rushed to provide defense and media coverage so that these boys would not be end up being killed extraditially by a lynch mob and then the whole thing being swept under the rug as had happened in previous instances. The NAACP, always seeking to promote themselves and the Communist Party of America, also seeking to promote themselves, gain members and gain donations, competed with one another to get as close to the Scottsboro Boys case as they could The Communist Party was first on the scene, providing the legal defense for the boys and always ensuring that one of their white members was in a photo op with one of the boys whenever the newspapers ran, since the Communist Party of America had been instructed by the Comintern to make greater strides with ethnic minorities in America. Now, imagine Joseph Stalin telling you that your organization was too white. I would have loved to have overheard that conversation. The leadership of the NAACP initially felt that the Scottsboro boys' case was not in line with their interests. The boys were all indigent and itinerant, hardly the talented tenth sort that the NAACP was used to championing. And initially, it looked as though they were indeed guilty, so the NAACP didn't want to get too closely associated with the case. The Communist Party did most of the heavy lifting in funding the boys' defense and changing public perception of the teens. And once the pendulum began to swing... Dr. Du Bois and the NAACP did latch onto the case. Dr. Du Bois was personally impressed by how ardently the Communist Party worked to bring publicity to the case and raise donations, which ended with several uh, court cases. It went back and forth in the courts for a long time, and you could only really consider the outcome partially successful. They did not end up getting lynched, but they all did serve some time. One of them died, actually, before he got out. And they were mostly exonerated post uh, mortem, but for 1930s Deep South, not getting lynched a couple days before and actually getting several court cases that went to the Supreme Court and you know having your rights legislated and the facts of the case legislated, you know the way that a, a white you know person would if they were accused of a crime was considered a great legal victory for 1930s deep South America. Uh, So Dr. Du Bois correctly suspected that the communists were attempting to present their party as a more effective organization than the NAACP, a suspicion that was partially confirmed when the NAACP, I'm sorry, the Communist Party made some critical statements about the NAACP. Via the crisis, Dr. Du Bois wrote several articles that condemned the Communist Party of America and claimed that they were unfairly attacking the NAACP and didn't understand the complexities of race in America, which was pretty much true. In response, the Communist Party of America accused Dr. Du Bois of being a bourgeois class enemy to working class Black Americans and accused the NAACP of being run by isolated white elites who were disconnected from the majority of working class Black people, which was also pretty much true for what it's worth both sides made good points about the other but the communists made a fatal error in attacking dr du bois personally as the black community was more familiar with him than they were with the still new on the scene communist party and dr du bois is still black and they were not so they really kind of was overstepping their authority there Chapter two, disaffection and disavowal. Founder status and faithful defense of the NAACP aside, Dr. Du Bois and the president of the NAACP since 1931, Walter Francis White, did not get along on a personal and professional level. Walter Francis White was a white-looking, black-identifying man from a politically influential Atlanta family. A family descended from William Henry Harrison and his slave, Dilcia. Yes, that William Henry Harrison, the ninth president of the United States who served the shortest presidency because he chose to give his inaugural speech, the longest in U.S. history, in the rain without a coat on. Walter Francis White attended Atlanta University, and his family was well acquainted with Dr. Du Bois' family. He even went to his daughter's wedding. But White's approach to running the NAACP antisocial activism was decidedly different from Dr. Du Bois's who also objected to being bossed around by one of his acolytes since Walter had an open admiration for Dr. Du Bois and wrote many papers praising him while a student at Atlanta University. Yeah, I would feel some type of way, too, if one of my former students was all of a sudden trying to tell me how to run my newspaper. But Dr. Du Bois, if that man didn't know how to do nothing else, he knew how to wear a cravat, insult somebody and spend some money. Sensing that his position as editor-in-chief of the crisis was about to be terminated, Dr. Du Bois resigned from the crisis in 1933 and accepted a teaching position at Atlanta University, bringing him back to Atlanta. In 1934, he publicly stated that he supported separate but equal, provided it was indeed equal, and that Black people would have the same legal protections as whites which stunned the NAACP and many at Atlanta University. He was asked to retract his statement and he refused, leading to his resignation from the NAACP, the organization that he had helped found. He's about to enter his edgelord period here. The Great Depression did a lot of wonky things to a lot of otherwise sensible people. Chapter 3, Black Reconstruction in America. The laissez-faire economic policies that led to the Great Depression, as well as the lack of concern that the Hoover administration had for black Americans hurt by it, made Dr. Du Bois become more disenchanted by American capitalism, and he began writing more articles examining Marxism and the ways that it could be used to improve economic conditions for black Americans. The extent to which Dr. Du Bois can be called a Marxist is still heavily debated in a lot of leftist circles, and I find it very odd and ironic to bet to be canonized amongst the Marxist intelligentsia alongside men like Gramsci and women like Luxembourg, Dr. Du Bois' life, work, and legacy typically have to undergo a purity test that requires the very real racial element of his activism to be picked over by people who have not had to deal with racism alongside their worker struggles. Or it is compared side by side with other struggles as though being black in America has to measure up to some sort of um, Marx, Marxist benchmark of what's an appropriate level of struggle or whatever. One of the enduring issues in Marxist organizing is the failure and or refusal to recognize that the material conditions of the working class are not uniform and that there are levels of marginalization within the working classes. Also, no one under the umbrella of the working class should have to subvert or ignore their particular struggles, be that as gay or as a woman or as a black person or as an Asian person or whatever, or as an immigrant, whatever their particular struggle is under the umbrella of working class, they don't have to subsume their personal struggles or their struggles of their group in order to advance some ideal Marxist organizing utopia, where they have to then trust people who don't look like them and don't fully relate to them to advance their particular needs and concerns. Anywho, while he never espoused a particular form of Marxism on this podcast, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois is a member of the Marxist intelligentsia with the analysis to prove it. And a lot of the stuff that he was saying in the 1930s and 40s is parroted badly, I might add, today by people who don't even know that he already said that shit. Moving right along, Dr. Du Bois was particularly enamored with Marxist atheism. He frequently criticized black churches for dulling black people's senses to racial injustice. But as as, uh, David Levering Lewis notes, he always praised black spirituality, which is a separate thing from established religiosity. Dr. Du Bois was a proponent of socialism, both as a means of examining Black life and race relations vis-a-vis their economic standing in America, and as a means of organizing to improve Black quality of life. He didn't approve of the Communist Party of America or of American labor unions because they routinely excluded Black people from membership in their ranks. That's the type of shit I'll be talking about. Back in Atlanta, Dr. Du Bois was able to resume his research on Reconstruction which he had begun back in 1910 when he presented a paper to the American Historical Association. Dr. Du Bois was the first African-American to present a paper at at their annual conference, and the last for a good long while because of his assertions. It had long been the mainstream view that Reconstruction was a failure and that direct assistance, which would now be called qualitative easing uh, to Black Americans, would not improve their quality of life or their educational or economic prospects. This was the school of thought promoted by the Dunning School of Scholars at Columbia University. They basically said that Reconstruction failed, not because the federal government pulled the plug on the project prematurely and then left black people at the mercy of white supremacists with a grudge to bear, but because black people were slothful and inept. This was used to put down any further talk of reparations as well. Doc Boys instead asserted that Reconstruction, for the brief period it was allowed to exist, produced a pretty fine quality of African-American leaders across industries and accomplished three important goals. Resurrection of democracy, free public schooling and a new form of social welfare legislation that he later on directly linked to like New Deal legislation. Dr. Du Bois asserted that it was the federal government's failure to manage the Freedmen's Bureau and its bank, to redistribute land, that would be the reparations part, and to establish an equitably funded public educational system that doomed African-American prospects in the South. Due to the accusations and assertions that Dr. Du Bois made, namely that white liberals simply gave up on Reconstruction, which they by and large did, His paper was largely ignored, and the AHA was so traumatized that they didn't invite another African-American speaker to present a paper until 1940, and I bet you they told him exactly what he could and could not say. Dr. Du Bois took his 1910 paper, did some more research, and then turned it into a book, arguably, again, his magnum opus called Black Reconstruction in America. In this book, Dr. Du Bois uh, emphasizes the agency of black people in the years immediately following emancipation and the strides that they made instead of lionizing liberal white northerners and focusing on their largesse and noblesse oblige. In the first three chapters, Dr. Du Bois explains the various social and economic classes of the antebellum South and the post-Civil War South, the black worker, the white free worker, and the white planter. This profile and breakdown of the social classes of the antebellum South mirrors Mao's 1926 analysis of the classes of Chinese society, which was one of the foundational texts that established uh, Maoist thought and socialism with Chinese characteristics. Imagine if we took Black Reconstruction and just kind of built in... Anyway, Mao's. Analysis was a bit more in-depth, but then again, the social-political structure of China was much larger than the antebellum South, but the general premise was the same. You have to know who your enemies are, what they look like, what their tendencies are. Everybody should read Mao. It's good stuff. It's not very dry at all. The Southern Planter was, of course, at the top of the antebellum social, political, and economic hierarchy. They usually came from a certain set of families who had settled in America from a certain set of Western European countries, namely Great Britain, France, or the Low Countries, Holland, and Belgium. Occasionally, but mostly infrequently, from some of the uh, German principalities as well. But Germany was at that time, according to one duke, a princess farm. I'll never get over that. They held the majority of the land, the planter did, married amongst one another, owned the bulk of the slaves, controlled trade, social customs, and held the bulk of the political positions as well. They all went to certain schools like your UVA's. They were all members of certain Christian Protestant denominations. And then, you know, you had your Catholics in Louisiana and low country, South Carolina and Georgia as well. And post-Civil War, they were the most staunchly against Reconstruction because it not only meant a redistribution of political power, but economic engines as well, mostly in the form of land, since the antebellum South was by and large an agrarian neo-feudal society. In the society, the Yale men were the white workers. They might have come from the same countries as the planters, but they were usually of a lower class in Europe. And that class distinction followed them to the Americas where they hoped to, in future generations, shed it. So you have like the Kingdom of Great Britain, uh and Ireland or however they phrased it after 1707. But within this United Kingdom, obviously the Irish were very low on the totem pole. And then when they went to uh, British settled, British controlled islands in the Caribbean and in the Americas in general, they were still lower class there too. For instance, The Irish and antebellum America and the Caribbean were relegated to the task of being overseers and small farmers and sometimes tenant farmers as well. In Margaret Mitchell's antebellum historical fiction Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara's background is frequently referred to as a mesalliance by her social peer India Wilkes. Referring to her father's Irish tenant farmer background versus her mother's French gentry background. In America, stories like Gone with the Wind serve to promote an idea that a white person could come from any background and not only become wealthy, but socially esteemed if they worked hard enough. What isn't said, but is glaringly obvious, both in Gone with the Wind and in real life, is that. To overcome one's humble beginnings in their native country, recent European immigrants and other recent immigrants must buy into the ingrained white supremacist notion that Black people exist to serve the needs of others and to be exploited for their labor. That brings us to the third column of Antebellum Southern Society, the Black worker. Hardest working, but paid the least, if at all, the Black worker is oftentimes regarded as no more than a common farm tool. They held no institutional power, not even when the nebulous status of free people of color was granted to them. And that was a very small percentage of the black population. And those people were usually lighter and descended from white planters. And then they married amongst each other and had these small cloistered communities where they became kind of a buffer class that was not entirely white, but not black either. Uh, They couldn't vote. The status of their landowning when they did have it was always up for debate and could be swindled from them at any time, if not taken by force. And even when promised legal protections, the police and courts often stood idly by while black workers were subject to mob violence, oftentimes for crimes that they did not commit. Dr. Du Bois found that there was little significant shift in these three main classes post-Civil War, but that Black workers post-Civil War did in fact embrace the opportunities that were presented to them and most times created their own opportunities where a vacuum might have existed. In the fourth chapter, Dr. Du Bois details the levels of resistance that slaves used to resist their condition and that the Civil War gave them the opportunity for a general strike that signaled the end of chattel slavery as much as the war did and before the war did, because the Union wasn't really winning the war in the beginning. The the South had the bulk of the military victories in I say the first two and a half to three years of the Civil War, especially in Virginia. Um and like on the eastern seaboard, they did not fare well in the Trans-Mississippi campaign. But nobody paid attention to those frontier campaigns until like 1863 and 1864. As a matter of fact, people hated Grant way longer than they liked him. And then when he became president, they hated him again because he just wasn't a very good one. The point that I'm making is, is that it wasn't um, a guarantee that either the North would win the war they definitely took their sweet time making the the war about ending slavery. So the slaves had no reason to think like, oh, well, war started. The The North's going to take care of this whole slavery thing. It's just going to be, you know, because the North had stood idly by and watched slavery continue for however many years. Why would they think that, you know, this war meant that the end of slavery was coming now, even after the Emancipation Proclamation? It's not like it was just, you know, a guarantee. What Dr. Du Bois promoted was that Black workers knew their worth and they did not wait for emancipation. They took their emancipation, either leaving the plantation in droves, um, one in the sea islands of Georgia and South Carolina, the white planters, as soon as the blockade started, even though Charleston was one of those places. Charleston and the Sea Islands was one of those places where the Union never had very many victories, not until you know the 54th Regiment had their victories with the Kambahi and uh, Beaufort. Still, the Union never had very many uh, naval or ground victories in the Sea Islands and low country South Carolina and Georgia. But when the planters on the sea islands, those barrier islands, when they left and went to the mainland, to Savannah and Georgia, to their homes and plantations there, the slaves just started autonomous communities on the sea islands. And um, some of them even resisted Union soldiers. When Union soldiers came and tried to put them to work, they were like, uh-uh, we are not substituting one form of white mastery over us for another. We know what the fuck we're doing. And they threw off the yoke of the Union soldiers as well. They said, we'll fight and we'll help you, provided there's something in it for us. But that was not always what people thought Uh, for a long time and probably still too, unfortunately. People thought that slaves just kind of like sat on the plantation. It was like, well, when the Union comes, well, I won't be a slave anymore. No, 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 no. The slaves knew their worth, they knew that didn't shit get done unless they did it. And so they just stopped fucking doing it long before the Emancipation Proclamation, long before Appomattox, long before any white person came around and said, hey, you're free. Black workers said, bitch, I'm free. You got other problems anyway. I'm gonna just go. And they made something of themselves and they didn't need the largesse of the federal government to do it because the federal government didn't do everything that they said they were going to do in the first place. So Dr. Boyce states, in a certain sense, after the first few months everybody knew that slavery was done with, no matter who won. The condition of the slave could never be the same after the disaster of war. So basically, my ancestors they saw the situation and they freaked it. I respect that. Dr. Boyce's notes In the subsequent chapters, that post-Civil War, the South didn't descend into political and economic chaos, both through the efforts of Reconstruction and through the efforts of the white planter-class elites who wanted to retain control over the land and politics. Paramilitary groups like the KKK were used to reinforce white supremacy and were funded by elites, but mostly manned by poor whites in a continuation of their overseer status from the antebellum era. They were mainly used to suppress the Black vote through terror. Dr. Du Bois also noted that the Southern working class needed to be divided by race lest they come into class consciousness and recognize that their material conditions and struggles made them more alike than different. This lack of class solidarity in the post-war South enabled the white Democrats of the planter class to regain control of state legislatures, which they then used to pass Jim Crow laws that disenfranchised poor Black and white working class Southerners. Dr. Du Bois once again popularized a term that has since become foundational in American sociological study. He argued that poor whites gained a public and psychological wage from anti-Black racism rather than a material wage that would improve their economic conditions. He defined the concept as follows. It must be remembered that the white group of laborers, while they received a low wage, were compensated in part by a sort of public and psychological wage. They were given public deference and titles of courtesy because they were white. They were admitted freely with all classes of white people to public functions, public parks and the best schools. The police were drawn from their ranks and the courts, dependent upon their votes, treated them with such leniency as to encourage lawlessness. Their vote selected public officials, and while this had small effect upon their economic situation, it had great effect upon their personal treatment and the deference shown to them. White schoolhouses were the best in the community and conspicuously placed, and they cost anywhere from twice to ten times as much per capita as the colored schools, while not producing the same level of quality education or graduates, mind you. The newspapers specialized on news that flattered the poor whites and almost utterly ignored the Negro except in crime and ridicule. Dr. Du Bois' analysis of the construction of white identity and the concept of the psychological wage were major influences in the field of whiteness studies. The author and professor David Roediger uh, wrote The Wages of Whiteness and it takes its title directly from Dr. Du Bois' concept. And it details the ways that Eurasian immigrants have shed their ethnic, linguistic and cultural identities to attain whiteness and how nebulous and shifting that a concept that whiteness is dominated and decided upon by the descendants of the New England settlers who represent the purest form of American whiteness. And there's also a European version that we're starting to see play out in current events right now. Dr. Bois highlighted the amazing gains in literacy and public health initiatives in the latter chapters of the book, documenting the creation of public health departments and sanitation initiatives, most spearheaded by Black members of the communities. Like, literally, the city of New Orleans had terrible dysentery, cholera, and yellow fever uh, uh, epidemics, like clockwork, every spring and summer until... It wasn't. They weren't even free. Most of them were still slaves, but they were just so sick and tired of getting sick because these nasty ass folks and their terrible drainage and sewage problems that literally, you're slaves. And they're like, boss, look, I gotta take off work. I have to build some trenches. You motherfuckers need sewage systems, okay? This is nasty. You can't just walk in filth, bro. You need clean water. What the hell you doing? He literally lived below sea level in a swamp. And the slaves and free black people of New Orleans, they're not going to teach this in schools, but it was the slaves and the free black people of New Orleans who said, enough is he fucking enough. And they built the New Orleans sewer systems. You're welcome. But yeah. To combat the claim that the radical Republicans had done a poor job at the constitutional conventions and during the first decade of Reconstruction, Dr. Du Bois noted that after the Democrats regained power in 1876, they didn't change the Reconstruction condition, uh, constitutions for nearly a quarter century later. And when the Democrats did pass laws to impose racial segregation in Jim Crow, they maintained The laws that supported public education, public health and welfare laws, along with the constitutional principles that benefited citizens as a whole, signaling that those laws, which again, were mostly passed by black led legislatures during reconstruction, were beneficial and effective. So we did know what the fuck we was doing. You're welcome. While Black Reconstruction did receive positive reviews in major newspapers soon after its publication, it was mostly ignored in academic circles, with the bulk of the American intelligentsia choosing to espouse the Dunning School's version of events. They weren't even fucking there. How you know? Anyway, his peers were offended by Dr. Du Bois' critiques because he would call you out by name, highlight exactly where you had him fucked up at, and he did not care if your feelings were hurt. Love that. But they were offended by his critiques of their previous writings on Friedman and the strides they made, especially when he listed a number of books and articles that he felt misrepresented Friedman and their role during Reconstruction. Like, imagine you've been kikiing in this man's face thinking that shit was sweet. And then he's like, yeah, when you wrote this, 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 and this, bitch, you was lying. You did not know what you was talking about. You look stupid. Apologize. And that's exactly how he would say it. That man will hurt your feelings. He identified the ones that he believed were particularly racist or ill-informed. You know how much white people hate to be called racist. I know they was crying. And he thought that certain historians were maintaining the Southern white fairy tale instead of accurately chronicling the events and key figures of Reconstruction. From the 1960s onward, a new generation of historians began to reevaluate Dr. Du Bois' work. They developed new research and came to conclusions that revised the historiography of Reconstruction and supported Dr. Du Bois' assertions in Black Reconstruction, such as Black people's agency in their search for freedom and the era's radical policy changes that began to provide for the general welfare rather than the interests of the wealthy planter class. By the early 21st century, Dr. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction was widely perceived as the foundational text for revisionist foundational texts of revisionist African American historiography. In addition to Black Reconstruction, Dr. Du Bois sought funding for a Black History Encyclopedia. In 1932, he was selected by several philanthropies, including the Phelps Stokes Fund, the Carnegie Corporation, and the General Education Board to be the managing editor for the Encyclopedia of the Negro. In 1938, all the philanthropies stopped funding the project because they felt Dr. Du Bois was too biased to write an objective encyclopedia, which probably meant that they wanted a whitewashed version of Black American history and Dr. Du Bois because he was who he was, wouldn't comply with that. Now, there is an encyclopedia, Africana, I know, I think I've mentioned it previously in one of my episodes, um, and it was compiled by Dr. Henry Louis Gates. The major issue with the Encyclopedia uh, Africana is that it is not indexed. And with all these black millionaires and billionaires, you've got run around America. Nobody wants to throw him some cash. Isn't that something? It's almost like having lots and lots of millionaires hasn't done shit for black people. Hmm. Chapter four, World War Two. In 1936, while the rest of the world's eyes were focused on the Berlin Olympics and the new Chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler, Dr. Du Bois embarked on a global trip which included visits to Germany, China, and Japan. This is his edgelord period, for real, for real. After returning, he expressed some very cringe sentiments, to which Black Americans, I feel, are particularly susceptible to after traveling abroad. Remember, it's the passport, and the money you're spending that is making them treat you so well, they don't like Black people. Despite the warning cries about Nazi-style fascism and the threat of German aggression that was coming from Jewish, Polish, Russian, and African intellectuals in Europe and abroad, Dr. Du expressed ambivalence towards Nazi Germany and stated that he had been treated very nicely there. I was treated really nicely in Poland. It's still fucking Poland, though. Mind you, Jesse Owens was also in Berlin at the same time, and he wasn't treated well, nor was he treated well when he got back, but that's because anti-blackness is what? Class? Global... But I suppose that the stroking of one's individual ego while on a two-month trip abroad carries more weight than, say, the warnings of, I don't know, Dr. Albert freaking Einstein, who tried to warn Dr. Du Bois not to fall for the Nazis' charms and propaganda personally, like he wrote you multiple letters, dude. Dr. Du Bois did write that he was horrified by the Nazis' treatment of the Jewish people, which he described as an attack on civilization comparable only to such horrors as the Spanish Inquisition and the African slave trade. Still, he gave them credit for reinvigorating the German economy, which they did through seizing Jewish wealth and storing it in Swiss bank accounts, Swiss and American, if we're keeping it a bug, and through illegal annexations and rearmament that directly led to World War II. But I guess, a thriving, and I'm using that term very loosely because the Nazis never really made Germany prosperous. They were just kind of floating on stolen wealth and being propped up by the U.S. government until like 1940. But I guess that covers like a multitude of whatever other sins because, well, that's men for you. The cringe didn't stop there, though. Uh, Dr. Du Bois was also enamored with the growing militarism of Meiji Japan. In 1905, after Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War, Dr. Du Bois Bois came to view Japan's growing strength as a sign of multipolarity, which it was, but he argued that Japan's rise represented a chance to break the monopoly that white nations had over international affairs. The thing is with that, though, is that Meiji Japan was also heavily funded by those same white imperialist nations who gave the empire as much of many of the guns and funds that it needed to become the preeminent Asian power in the world. People like to present Meiji Japan as, oh, the Japanese... Uh, flipped it on the European powers. They were supposed to become a vassal state and they ended up being powerful in their own right. But no, no, they they were still a vassal. They were just a vassal that got out of line and then got bombed as a result. This meant as long as Japan played by the West rules, they could remain a strong independent nation. Once the empire overstepped the boundaries that the West had set for them, they got leveled. Now, in light of recent events, I have to admit that I, too, have been rooting for multipolarity as a means to break American hegemony. But I think that the nature of Imperial Japan in the 1930s and 40s is markedly different from the nature of the People's uh, People's Republic of China today. China is wielding soft power and economic strength rather than military dominance as a means of becoming the predominant Asian power, which is something that I can get behind because at least when you wield soft power, people don't die and there's the opportunity for mutual benefit. So long as you remember that this is a soft power initiative, they expect to get something out of it. So you need to be coming with your own lists of demands, because they wouldn't be approaching you if you didn't have something that they wanted, right? So have some respect for yourself when you go to the negotiating table, and you two can just wield big sticks together. Now, we all know about Joseph Goebbels and his Nazi propaganda department, but did you know that Meiji Japan had a similar operation called the Negro Propaganda Operation? Not very subtle, is it? And that they traveled to the United States in the 1920s and 30s and met with both Du Bois and Garvey, among others, and hoped to use these men to spread a positive image of Meiji Japan and its race relations within the Black community. They also uh, cultivated a lot of fans, particularly within the KMT, uh, Communist China's main internal enemies, and some. Uh, more liberal, democratic, capitalist elements throughout Southeast Asia as well. With this whole follow after the Meiji Japanese, and we will have a Pan Asian Renaissance that is, of course, led by us, Japan. Now, this whole Negro propaganda operation, right? They funded a trip for Garvey, uh, for not for Garvey, but for. Du Bois and a small group of academics to visit Japan. And not just Japan, but Japanese controlled Taiwan and Manchuria as well. So they took them on this, like, there is no war embossing, say, kind of visit to certain parts of Japanese controlled Korea and Japanese controlled Taiwan and Japanese controlled China so that they could say, see? Everybody likes being under Japanese dominance. There's no problem. Rape of Nanking, comfort women, what's that? Uh, They were lying, right? And so Dr. Du Bois, who had a, he had a bad habit of seeing one good thing or two good things or two things that had been specially constructed to look like good things and being like, oh, everything seems great here. All right, cool, cool. So they took him to see like the new railroads or whatever that had been built in Manchuria. Railroads that were built by like basically Chinese slaves, hello, and were transporting goods to fuel their war efforts because they had been waging a low intensity war against the Chinese Republic in southern China since like, I don't know, like 20 years before. Uh, World War II, I think. But, you know, Dr. Du Bois gets shown some railroads and some, oh no, we're happy workers here. And he spoke with some compradors because there were a lot of K- KMT aligned land owning compradors in Manchuria. And he allowed himself to be persuaded that Japanese colonialism in Manchuria was benevolent, writing that colonial enterprise by a colored nation need not imply the caste exploitation and subjection, which it has always implied in the case of white Europe. Now, I bet that those Meiji Japanese were probably apoplectic <laughs> at being referred to as colored. <laughs> yeah, he did not read that situation very well at all. While Dr. Du Bois was eventually disturbed by the Japanese alliance with Nazi Germany, he also argued Japan was only compelled to enter the pact because of the hostility of the United States and United Kingdom. And he viewed American apprehensions over Japanese expansion in Asia as racially motivated both before and after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Man, this guy never met a hill that he would not die on. Because after Pearl Harbor, I would have shut the fuck up immediately. I would have been like, no, I never said that shit. Uh, Not me. Uh. Then I him. he he was ten toes all the way the fuck down. Of course, when things came to war, like Einstein and others, fucking said it would. Dr. Boys, in keeping with his the anti-war stance that he'd adopted during World War I, opposed the u s intervention in World War II, particularly in the Pacific, because he believed that China and Japan were emerging from the clutches of white imperialists. What? Okay. He felt that the Allies waging war against Japan was an opportunity for whites to reestablish their influence in Asia. When in actuality, Japan had joined the eight-nation alliance that invaded China in 1900 and until Pearl Harbor, Japan had literally worked alongside European imperialists to keep China weak and divided, China in particular, weak and divided for like decades. Literally. Dr. Boyce isn't just like some regular dude. You are the first black PhD from Harvard and you didn't connect those dots. You were 32 years old when the Eight Nation Alliance invaded uh, northern China. How did you think that the Chinese and the Japanese were in any way on the same level or that they were fighting the same type of? In- yeah, he just did not want to admit that he was wrong on that one. He just didn't. He, that has to be it. You were too damn old to have such naive opinions. Or maybe that that propaganda, Meiji propaganda group, maybe they was paying his bills. I don't know. But literally, like he's in his 60s at this point talking crazy like this. Like they had in the run up to World War I, Dr. Du Bois and other black leaders had planned to leverage black American participation in World War II to lobby for civil rights and economic advancement, which is kind of ghoulish because like it's a group of people that are not going to have to go off and fight that are using your your literal body, your life to leverage for civil rights that you might not even get to live to enjoy and you got to do it while fighting for a country that like treats you like crap and, and I just don't I don't like it I don't like it he expressed outrage over the U.S. government's plan for black Americans in World War II like World War I black soldiers were limited to about 5% of the force and there were to be no african american combat units cuz like even in war you know europeans white people they got to maintain their their racism like pick up a gun and fight for us but don't you dare shoot any of us like ah uh-uh. With the threat of losing the Black vote to the Republican Wendell Wilkie in the 1940 election, FDR appointed a few Black men to leadership posts in the military as a means of appeasement. And that is still a a, a policy that works. Wow, geez. Imperial Japanese cheerleading aside, Dr. Du Bois took some time to write his second autobiography, Dusk of Dawn, in 1940. The title refers to his hope that African-Americans were passing out of the darkness of racism into an air of greater equality. It sounds like he's passing a torch, but he doesn't. The book is part autobiography, part history, and part soci- sociological treatise. Dr. Du Bois described the book as the autobiography of a concept of race, elucidated and magnified and doubtless distorted in the thoughts and deeds which were mine. Thus, for all my life is significant for the, all the lives of all men. Okay. Back on the job front, though, things were less than peachy. At ni- in 1943, at the age of 75, imagine being 75 in 1943. Like This dude is old. Dr. Boyce was abruptly fired from his position at Atlanta University by college president Rufus Clement. Many scholars expressed outrage at this, prompting Atlanta University to provide Dr. Boyce with a lifelong pension and the title of professor emeritus. Which he deserved. He deserved. He was probably insufferable, insufferable to have on staff, though. Um, fellow NAACP founder and longtime friend of Dr. Bois, Arthur Springarn, remarked that Dr. Bois spent his time in Atlanta battering his life out against ignorance, bigotry, intolerance, and slothfulness, projecting ideas nobody but he understands, and raising hopes for change which may yet be comprehended in a hundred years. You better go off for your friend, Arthur Springarn. He let the chopper go. Turning down job offers from Fisk and Howard universities, which I ain't even gonna lie to you, judging by what Howard University students and faculty have been going through lately, that was probably a good idea. Dr. Du Bois instead rejoined the NAACP as director of the Department of Special Research. Despite his advanced age, Dr. Du Bois jumped into the job with the vigor and determination of a man half his age. This was also said by Springarn and As you can see, he goes hard for his friends. So who knows how true that is. But I just found it really funny that he was like, bitch, you didn't deserve my friend anyway. However, during Dr. DuVoy's 10-year hiatus from the NAACP, their income had increased fourfold and their membership had soared to 325,000 members worldwide. So I have to wonder, like, what the hell was he spending money on? Because he wasn't in charge of, like, the entire NAACP. He was in charge of the crisis, the newspaper, just the newspaper, not the legal defense, not the the PR wing, not the, the scholarship fund, just the crisis. Like, were you using eight ply toilet paper to print it? Did, did you have people getting their crisis delivered to them by carrier dove? How was you bleeding money like this, sir? Academics are so bad with money. Ask me how I know next episode dr du bois is pulled back into the socialist sphere again this time led by love he reaffirms his commitment to pan-africanism has beef with the u.s government what else is new there and leaves a legacy that touches all aspects of black american life join me next time for more musings on history